This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to another podcast from InsideCarolina.com, the independent voice of UNC Sports. Brought to you by JohnnyTShirt.com, the go-to provider for all your Tar Heel gear. For Inside Carolina, I'm Taylor Vipolis, and you're listening to this podcast, which is a part of the Inside Carolina Podcast Network. So first off, thank you for being here. If you haven't already, subscribe to Inside Carolina wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube so you never miss any of the content our team at IC puts out. It hardly takes any time, and it helps us out a great deal. Also, speaking of support, we want to support the people that support us. So that's why I've got to remind everybody about Johnny T-Shirt. Johnny T-Shirt is the go-to shop for all things Carolina apparel. They've got your football jerseys, the T-shirts, the hats, and all the Carolina hoodies and jackets you could ever want. Head over to Franklin Street or go to johnnytshirt.com now. They have a great New Year's uh, sale going on. And don't forget, Inside Carolina, premium subscribers save 10% off their orders. All right, let's get to it. As always, I'm joined by my fellow Carolina football letterman, Mike Ingersoll and EJ Wilson. And guys, Carolina loses 41-27 to to number five, Texas A&M. In what turned out to be a pretty exciting Orange Bowl matchup, what were your biggest takeaways from the bowl game, Mike, starting with you? So uh, I'll start this off by – I'll start off our our final positivity pod of the season um, by saying that it was a pretty good glimpse in what we're going to have next year on the defensive side of the ball, which EJ is going to talk about. Um, Offensively, we – we ran out of steam offensively because we just, we didn't catch the ball. We didn't execute. Um, the only thing that stopped us on offense was us. Texas A&M didn't do anything uh, overly special, except for the fact that they were substantially faster than anybody we'd played this season, uh, particularly at the linebacker spot. And Sam Howell figured that out the first time he tried to run the ball. And then every single time after. Um, so my, my takeaways from this were that um, there is a, there's a lot of, there's a lot of positive to take out of this game moving into the next season. Also, a lot of times you'll see games that are, you know, a two-touchdown lead, a two-touchdown win or a three-touchdown win. Um, or, excuse, or let me back up. You'll see, you'll see games that are a one-score a one victory for another team, right? But you, the, the narrative most of the time, um, or in a lot of those games, not most of the time, but with a lot of those games, is that um, that game wasn't actually as close as the final score showed you. I think that this game wasn't as blown open as the final score showed you, right? I think this was a much closer football game, anybody who watched it, um, than the 14-point victory would, would, would lead you to believe if you were just checking scores. Um, you know, that, that 14 points, that, that lead didn't grow until we missed the fourth and one opportunity. If we don't miss that fourth and one opportunity, this is a one-score game. This might have even gone into overtime if we, if we could catch the deep pass or if we, we could execute in the red zone, assuming we could move the ball there on that final drive. Um, so this game was, was much closer than the final score would lead you to believe, um, you know, as opposed to the inverse, which is what you normally see is that games are uh, uh, more of a blowout than the final score would, 
would indicate. So I think yeah. there's a lot of positives, a lot of positives to take away from this game. Um, I think British Brooks, you know, I've been high on him all season. I was kind of excited. Um, I was disappointed, obviously, with the opt-outs, but I was excited to see whether British Brooks would, would, would come in and be our guy. I also want to see if Josh Henderson with more of a workload um, you know, could, could show flashes. I thought they both did some good things. I thought they did some inexperienced things. We'll get into that. Um, you know, we saw the difference in this game in several spots between having a thousand yard multi-year starter back, right. An all conference, all American type back and a guy who hasn't really played a whole lot um, that, that showed up in some key spots. Um, but I think with, with game experience, that is going to, um, that's going to alleviate itself. I think, I think that's going to, we're going to see a lot of improvement in those guys between you know, this game and then the start of next season. And then my final takeaway was, was uh, Eugene Asante was all over the field. Um, I wanted to see how he was going to perform and Chaz Surratt out. They've been, coaches have been very high on him all year. That kid was, was everywhere. Every single time, every time the ball was, every time Texas A&M snapped the ball, Asante was somewhere near it. Um, either he was making the play or he was in on the play. And from a blitzing standpoint, he shows a real prescience. He shows a real knack and understanding um, for, for, for blitzing, for why you blitz, and, and, and for blitzing properly um, in terms of technique uh, and assignment. So he was, um, he was very impressive to me. So th- those are my three takeaways. A lot of bright spots. Um, I, think the, I think the running game uh, in terms of the backs we're going to have coming back next year is going to be a real positive. And Asante was an absolute animal, and I'm sure EJ will get into that more in depth. Yeah, this was a tie game with like five minutes left. So I, I definitely agree that the final score – doesn't really do the game justice where, where Carolina did battle with a borderline playoff team. But EJ, what were your biggest takeaways from this game? Um, I'll honestly say um, watching a team, I think with the, with the expectations that I personally had on them, I, I didn't expect to feel this good coming off of a loss. But my, my positive takeaway, since this is the Positivity Podcast, is that I do think that we're going to have one of the best uh, defenses in the ACC next year. Eugene Asante is, I think, will be a candidate for a first-team All-ACC, at least second-team All-ACC. The kid is just a natural football player. I mean, everything that I've talked about this season, um, knowing your assignment, uh, hitting your blitz assignment with with aggressiveness, but still um, having your eyes around so you can still make a play, being physical, just being all over the field. I think he brought that in a little bit more. So I honestly don't think that we we miss Chaz in that in that respective. But I do think that um, I am excited for for his career and what he can do for us next year. Combined with a lot of guys, especially uh, Tony Grimes, who I mean, for a kid that's supposed <laughs> to be playing high school football right yeah, now, kid that dude good. is an abs. Yeah, he's an absolute ball player. And, and I they don't didn't, mean they just, didn't they didn't test him a whole lot either. Yeah, exactly. And, and when they did test him, he came up and he made plays, plays that plays that you see upper class and make and not someone who's who's supposed to be playing high school football, getting ready for a prom and for graduation right now. I mean, so I'm absolutely impressed with him. But my biggest takeaway, other than some of the things that Mike said that I agree with, is that we're just not there yet. I don't think we're that far off, but we're just not there yet. Are we, are we one of the top teams in ACC? Yes. Can we beat most of the teams that we line up against? Probably. Yes. But can we compete? Mac Brown has been quoted and said that they want to buy a house in the top 10 neighborhood. Well, we're not quite there yet. I do think we're on the outside looking in. I do think that we can hold our weight more so than even some of the best teams that I played on probably could have held their weight with some of these teams. But I do think that, um, as you mentioned our last podcast, like we are punching up a little bit. We're punching up a little bit going into this Orange Bowl. And we look like we were ready for the challenge. I mean, yeah. you add you add those two running backs in. You add De'Ami Brown in. 
I, with the offensive support, with some of the things that our defense was able to do, I think this is a much a much different game. I mean, you and I even text each other that I mean, with with, with those two guys in late in the fourth quarter, that's a ten point game instead of us being. It, it, I think at that point it was tie, a tie game, and I thought we would have been up by ten if we had that offensive support. And third takeaway, I've never thought I'd be on one of these podcasts saying that we didn't get the offensive support and our defense did what we did to win the game. But And, and the thing is, these were young guys. I mean, unfortunately, I didn't see a lot of Patrice Renee out there. Um, I saw a lot of a lot of Jaquarius Conley. I saw a lot of Cam Kelly. I saw a lot of uh, Grimes. I saw a lot of Miles Murphy. I saw a lot of, um, I saw a lot of uh, Tamari Fox. I saw everything that I needed to see from Raven Hassock. I'm very surprised that that kid's coming back to Carolina next year. I mean, very, very surprised. I mean, very that happy. kid had one. Oh, yeah, very, very happy. I had one play last night where I looked over to my wife and I said, that's exactly how you play D-line. It was the play where he made – where he pretty much had the offensive lineman on skates on the goal line, which is mm-hmm. something yeah. I didn't think Division One offensive lineman had the potential to do. But, I mean, he put the guy completely on skates. That part alone was textbook. But to be able to shed that block and make that play, that that, that kid's going to be – I think he's going to be another um, first-team All-ATC type of player next year for So I'm completely excited about what I saw from this defense, not only from those young players, but I saw Coach Bateman be a little bit more aggressive last night. I heard that the commentators made the, um, the comment that Jimbo didn't think that Carolina was going to pressure um, every play what film has he been watching all year? I mean, that, that kind of surprised me because that's what we do. Pressure is what we do. But that pressure looked a lot different last night. And I think the only difference between us getting home on some of those plays were, one, the missed tackles that came back to bite us, which, which I'll get into later on some of those longer runs at the end of the game. And just having – you're playing against higher caliber athletes. A quarterback like Kellen Mond, I mean, he, he, he's, he's been playing in the system – for a long time. I mean, he's got a lot of snaps under his belt. He knows how to get that ball out quick. So I don't think so, some of those plays that they made last night are a complete credit to, I think, Texas A&M and not a discredit to our defense. We're just not there yet. We the, the our, our talent and athleticism that looks like SEC talent that we were recruiting and bringing in and some of the guys aren't playing, they aren't there yet with the football X's and O's on a collegiate level, I think, to compete with some of those. But on the positive side of that, I, I don't think that we're not there yet because we don't have the talent. I think we're not there yet because we haven't been in enough of those situations. So. Well, yeah, I mean, I think Bateman's defense is probably a little more cerebral than, than, than some of these other schools, right? It's not just a lineup and out athlete people. There's, you know, there, there's a lineup and out athlete people component to it, but it's a, you know, schematically, I, I think he runs a fairly complex system. Oh, yeah. uh, you know, complex as far as defenses are concerned, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think the other thing, too, that you mentioned, too, was a Jimbo – Jimbo didn't think that we were going to pressure as much as we did. My best guess for that is he assumed we were more shorthanded on the defensive side than we really were. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think his, his opinion was likely that Chaz Surratt not being in there was going to be a much bigger hit to our defense than it was going to be, and that we weren't confident in our abilities to, to bring extra pressure and still be able to cover on the back end. Bateman looks like he just said that, you know, the heck with that. And brought the house almost every single play, which is what he needed to do early on when we saw that, you know, three, four, five-man pressures weren't getting a whole lot of mm-hmm. – or three, four, five-man rushes weren't getting a whole lot of pressure on Kellen Mond. We had to start bringing some. And you saw a really good offensive line in Texas A&M yep. getting really confused. Yep. Right? And then as that, you know, as that confusion built up – and this is what happens with offensive lines, right? So this isn't just Texas A&M. This is O-line play generally. When you start getting beat 
on, you know, when you start missing your blitz pickup, right, everybody starts questioning themselves or they move a, you know, a half a step slower because you're trying to process information a lot faster. You're wondering, what are we missing? Why are they getting home so much, right? Mm -hmm. And in the, starting in the second quarter, we started getting home a lot more on these blitzes. Really, we started blitzing more. Yeah. I think that's the point that Jay realized, hey, you know, we got to start bringing some pressure. We're not going to get home at all. Um, and, and when that offensive line started giving up pressure that they weren't used to giving up all season, because again, they're, that was a Joe Moore word finalist. They kept, they kept putting it up on the screen all night long, that this is one of the top rated offensive lines in America. And for very good reason, those guys are good. They're big, they're athletic, they have good feet. And fundamentally they were very sound. And obviously they play an SEC schedule. Right. So they're going to be a good offensive line. They're going to have a lot of experience and they're going to be physical. I thought that our defensive line did a really good job about physicaling those guys once they got confused mm -hmm. and started hesitating a little bit as they were clearly trying to process more information. They weren't, I think, I don't want to say they weren't prepared because I'm sure they watched the film and I'm sure they did blitz walkthrough and I'm sure they did all that stuff. Right. I think that really what it was is they just weren't expecting, like Jimbo said, all that pressure. And when you get hit in the mouth like that early and quick and often, uh, as an offensive line, again, you start to, to, to process stuff a little slower. You start looking at your eyes, start getting a little, you start darting your eyes a little more and you're checking things you don't normally check. And that makes you a, you know, a half a step slow. And next thing you know, that's affecting every aspect of the, of your play. And I thought A&M's offensive line until the final two touchdowns they scored, mm -hmm. I thought A&M's offensive line from the beginning of the second quarter through minute, you know, five minutes remaining in the fourth quarter, I thought our defensive line and our defense manhandled that offensive line, um, you know, outside of those two, you know, that first quarter and that final five minutes. Unfortunately, that first quarter and that final five minutes was the difference in the game. But those final five minutes, to your point, Mike, I honestly didn't see. I, I think, and I will. I think a lot of our pressures getting home have to do with the aggressiveness that Tony Grimes and Eugene Asante brought. They they weren't blitzing like we had been blitzing all season. These guys were coming in and blitzing with bad intentions, and I think they kind of turned the heat up and, and it kind of caught fire with a lot of the other guys. Oh, and I they agree. Said, hey, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. And I mean. Um, and a lot of the times with, with these pressures, all, all we're doing is we're confusing them. And with their offensive line, I don't think that with those last five minutes, I don't think we did a bad job up front. But what you will see is that our old friend, old old Mr. Miss Tackle came back to bite us in the butt, especially on that 70-yard that, that run that sealed the deal. I mean, I, I don't even remember. I think it was – I think is – I don't think Trey Morrison's number one. But the guy came in and pretty much like – Kyler McMichael, yeah. Kyler McMichael came in and, and, and thudded the guy up like we were doing nine on – nine inside run during practice and that's the play where you saw Cam Kelly sell out and get injured a little bit but, but I, I think everyone was in the right place it just was a lapse of oh I, I don't have to go in and tackle as hard because I have a lot of guys around him and even I mean the block that was even on, on the other run the block that was put on um that was put on Eugene Asante I mean but there, there are not many pro bowlers that are getting around a block like that from a tight end, especially with that angle. And even for him to be able to recover and sell out to try to tackle that guy, I, I, and I do, I think a lot of a lot of the success we're able to have comes down to those two guys. And I do, I do want to give my D line guys credit for 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 holding their own against one of the, as you mentioned, one of the top bowl lines in the country. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that. Sorry, just one one follow up on that. I, I think the the one thing that we most I was most impressed with was at one point I looked up and the defense had been on the field for for most of the game. Uh, I think that was fairly obvious because when we scored, we scored fairly quickly, um, with the exception of you know I think the first the first touchdown drive. Um, but I looked up at one point. I think it was midway through the third quarter, and 
I looked at Eugene Asante specifically because he hasn't been playing a whole lot, and I wanted to see what's this kid. This kid's got to be gassed because I'm sure that defense is gassed. And I saw Vahasek breathing heavy. I saw a couple guys breathing heavy, and Asante was just standing there looking up at the scoreboard. And it was like three or four plays into that drive, and he wasn't breathing. I mean, I didn't see his stomach moving in his pads at all. I mean, I was very impressed by his conditioning, considering the fact he's just been a special teams player for the most part all season long. I thought that was that was encouraging. That's you know that, that's a kid who's clearly putting in the work and doing what he needs to do to be prepared. Oh, yeah. yeah, going back to just the overall takeaways before we move on to some more specific questions. Um, my biggest takeaway was that this team, with without four of its five best players, they have nothing to be ashamed about from that Orange Bowl performance. They went toe-to-toe with the number five team in the country for, you know, what is it 55 minutes I guess since the game was tied for five minutes before things kind of fell apart in the fourth quarter and it was just a team that ran out of steam um they were outmanned they lost a turnover battle you you look at the fourth down uh not picking up the fourth downs that's that's essentially a turnover I know uh our I treat I treat those as turnovers yeah our our coaching staff did the same thing but when you when you look at this game before kickoff you know if if it was up to some of the fans and some of the talking heads like this Carolina team wouldn't have even made the trip to South beach, the way some of the people were setting up this game. And you, you went into the fourth quarter, gave the ball to Sam Howell with the chance to win the game. So I, I really don't think you could ask for too much more. And I, I generally came away impressed. And I think this team does have a bright future, but Mike, to me, kind of going back to one of those earlier points about the turnovers and just kind of the red zone inefficiencies. That's where this game kind of was decided for me early on. Carolina settled for two field goals in its four trips inside the red zone. And I kind of remember thinking, you know, against a team like A&M, they're not going to give you too many of those opportunities and you, you really have to be able to capitalize. And this is where they missed the opt-outs, not being able to turn and give the ball to Javante Williams inside the 10, 15 yard line where you could just hand him the ball and just tell him, go do the rest. What did you make of Carolina inside the red zone and then their red zone struggles? I thought that A&M's defense was substantially faster than I thought it was going to be, particularly from the linebacker position, which I mentioned in my takeaways earlier on. Um, they, th- their linebackers were very good. They were very rangy uh, and they were fundamentally sound. I was surprised at our inability to move the ball down in the red zone, even with backup running backs, because our offensive line had done such a good job all year long of creating holes down there and creating some space um, for those guys to run. And and what I will say is I don't think our offensive line did a bad job in the red zone. Um, It can can be better, but that's a defense where they brought a lot of multiple looks, right? They brought, uh, there were a lot of guys walked up. Um, Their defense was designed especially down there in the red zone on creating confusion in terms of who's, who's coming, who's not coming from a blitzing standpoint and from a pressure standpoint. And you know, I, I think they just had better athletes. I think their, their defense had better athletes than our offense had from a blocking assignment standpoint. I think they were just, they were just, um, they were better at defeating our blocks than we were, than we were at maintaining them where you see, you know, it, it looked reminiscent to me, not necessarily in the red zone, but just trying to run the ball generally. It looked reminiscent to me of that Virginia game. The difference between that Virginia game and this game was 
however, was that you had Javante Williams and Michael Carter in the Virginia game, and you had guys like Javante Williams that if he gets hit at the line of scrimmage or a yard deep, he still manages to turn it into three, four, or five yards. You saw A&M, you saw A&M doing that throughout the game. A lot of times they get hit at the line of scrimmage or get hit behind the line, or the, they'd get disrupted behind the line right at the handoff, and they would still manage to turn it into a, a, some, some positive gain, sometimes even an efficient run, something over four yards. Um, we struggled doing that down in the red zone. And then from a pass protection standpoint, um, if we're just going to talk red zone, I, I thought that the, we, had a, we had this – the one issue we had all day long was that in our one-on-one matchups, we, just, we lost a lot. Playing, I mean, there's not, a whole lot to, there's not a whole lot else to say there. We lost a lot in our one-on-one matchups. We lost on the inside. We lost on the outside. Um, we'll get to the two-minute drill. You know, when Sam was getting absolutely demolished back there and they're only bringing a three-man rush – um, you know, I, I saw I saw some things that concerned me from a pass protection standpoint uh, late in that game in that two minute drill, um, but that those those same issues plagued us earlier on in the game down in the red zone, and I just didn't think we did a good enough job of keeping guys out of Sam's face and holding holding our protection and holding the pocket as long as we needed to against a team like that to give him time for our guys to get open and to be able to make a play. Yeah, the critics always come out for Coach Longo whenever Carolina struggles inside the red zone. But I think you, you look yeah, at some plays. Like, unlike, unlike Florida State, I didn't think this was a bad job from re- in, terms of, in, terms of, in terms of his red zone play calling. I thought, we, I thought we called the right plays. We just did a poor job of executing. Yeah, you lose 2,000-plus rushing yards. It's, it's going to be a challenge for an offensive co- coordinator who already tries to get creative and – you're trying to figure out ways to kind of make up for those yards. I think we saw Sam Howell run the ball a lot more mm-hmm. to try to make up for some of those yards. You saw uh, packages where Josh Downs is lined up in the backfield and he's running that wheel route concept for a touchdown. Like I, if, if people are going to be critical for somebody like Longo, I think you also have to praise him for those type of plays where he is able to get Josh Downs was on the field, 15 plays that like, that number seems incredibly low because of how productive he was and how Carolina was able to maximize that. And you just look at this Carolina team without Michael Carter and without Javante Williams, they were, the deck was already stacked against them. And when you struggle inside the red zone and you can't, you're settling for three instead of seven, it it was just going to be tough to win this. But EJ, the Carolina defense, all things considered, they looked good for three quarters. They held A&M to 20 points heading into the fourth quarter, and seven of which came off that short field turnover. They forced four three and outs without their best player. What did you see specifically that led to a stronger performance from this defense? I saw a team that looked very, very well prepared. They looked very in sync and very in tune with the game plan. And there was, I really did not see any drop off from anyone that was in the game. Of course, through the first two quarters, I really just saw, I mean, the normal starters in the game, but anyone who came in and played, I mean, my, I think my, who's coming and becoming my favorite player, Kemon Rucker came in. He even <laughs> made a little noise. I mean, I, I, I try to mention him at least once or twice every podcast. Um, but I mean, the guy came in and he made some noise. Um, they they just stuck to the game plan and they executed and they did everything that they needed to be successful in Coach Bateman's defense. They were physical. They kept their eyes on the key on their keys for the most part. They tackled well. I think until the fourth quarter, until 
which I think is just a – I think the guys just got gassed. I mean, we were on the field for 31 minutes. Um, and, I, of course, we're used to our offense scoring slow. But Texas A&M was, I think, what, number three in the country at our time of possession. So they, they know how to methodically control the cl- – control the clock and I do think that we did um, a good job of getting them off the field quickly three and outs three and outs but they start to stack up I mean I, I don't care I mean four three and outs is just as bad as 225 yard drives I mean it, it's going to gas you out the same way it's the same mental gymnastics that you have to play but I commend uh, coach Bateman for sticking uh, w- with the with his game plan uh, it, it's exactly what I thought was going to happen he was going to get some of those younger guys moving around um he he I think he did a great job using Eugene Asante until he really got comfortable with the flow of the game and I mean I've I've I have not seen a kid blitz like that probably since uh Kevin Reddick or um Bruce Carr they those guys are just they, they they were hammerheads yesterday I mean even if they weren't getting the sack they were they were disrupting a play I mean they, they were chipping pullers they were uh putting running running backs off their target so everything I saw was just encouraging. The parts that I think that that kept us from probably taking over that game and winning it for us were, were just a few things. I, I don't think it's anything being a step slow or misreading our keys. We were just going up against better athletes. But like I said, their athletes have been playing in that system for a little bit longer than our athletes are. So I think, I mean, this time next year, this is a, this is, this game's a different story. But if there's some butts and cannons with nuts, we would have all had a Merry Christmas. So I had a Merry Christmas. I, I, I did too. This 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 game actually made it even more merry. I mean, I I I, I don't know who these guys in these Carolina uniforms who have been playing for us defensively have been, but I sure hope that they have eligibility left for next year because I'm, I mean I'm I'm super excited about these guys. I mean even guys. I mean I heard a lot of talk about Eugene Asante, but honestly I hadn't seen a lot this season to get me super excited about him as I am about some of the other guys. But my mind was completely changed yesterday. I think that we have a serious uh, ball player in him, and I th- I do think that he could be a better player than Chaz was. I don't think he'll have a better career simply because of how story Chaz was, but I do think overall that he could become a better player, especially with the supporting staff that he has around him that he's going to grow with. I mean, you talk about Tamari Fox. I mean, we got Ray coming back for another year. Miles Murphy. Uh, we still got Dez Evans out on the outside. Chris Collins on the outside. Cam Kelly. Jaquarius Conley. So, I mean, we have a, ro- a plethora of players that are coming back on that defense. Who, and, and how did I forget about my guy, Don Chapman, who I think um, hopefully he listens to this podcast and is going to uh, <laughs> take some of my criticism and use it to uh, motivate him next year. But I do think that we're going to see more of the big play Don Chapman next year than we will see of the guy who kind of looked lost a little bit out there. So overall, Coach Bateman's faith in this um, – Coach Bateman's faith, faith in the, uh, the, the younger guys and the guys that he had out there playing to really execute his style of defense and I think really truly play his style of defense, aggressive, physical, and hard-hitting all year. So, I mean, we didn't win. Yeah, we still gave up 400-something and total yards, which – Honestly, I, I think those last couple yards had inflated that. If you take away those last few runs, with, I mean, that's about 120 yards off right there. And, I mean, if you look at that number alone, minus those brain farts and farts and technique, that's a solid game. And, and as you mentioned, Taylor, is I don't know what more we could have asked from this group of guys. I mean, I'm, I'm proud of the product that they put out on the field yesterday. You know, somebody who deserves a little credit is Tommy Thick. Big pen too. Oh yeah, yeah. Thig, Thig is no slouch when it comes to actually coaching technique for linebackers too. He's a, he's a great recruiter. Um, he's a smooth guy, but he is he is one of the foremost linebacker coaches in the country, and we know that personally. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's coached some good ones. He was a good one himself. Um, yeah. So I think I think Thig deserves a lot of credit getting a guy like 
like Asante ready to play that game and play, play as fast and free the way he did. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. Yeah, you had mentioned, um, EJ, the Texas A&M time of possession stat. And I think another stat that kind of um, exemplified that is that Texas A&M, third down conversion percentage, they're the third best team in the country. And they really know how to prolong these drives and really wear down a defense. And I think that's what we did see because going into the fourth quarter, um, they were only three of nine on third down so Carolina while they were they it was kind of a feast or famine I think uh, Greg Barnes kind of described it where it was either a three and out or Texas a and would score but you know they did give this offense a chance to win and I think this game I've had a couple of these games where it's it's been like a reassurance that Carolina does have the right staff in place like mm-hmm. in, in previous years you, you didn't always feel that but this year like when the guys go out there and execute a game plan and Mac Brown mentioned it in his post game, like for the coordinators to not have four of the best players that this team has against an sec top five team that had a, a, a strong argument to make that fourth spot in the playoffs for these coordinators to put a game plan in place. Uh, I think it was a short week in preparation standpoint too where you don't have the the normal like month you would have to prepare for a bowl game these coordinators put the guys in a a place to win this game and yeah Carolina they missed some tackles I think it was Don Chapman who missed the tackle on the long run but you know it's it's better that Carolina's missing the tackles than just not being anywhere near the ball and with the guy like Eugene Asante yeah he made his mistakes and and Mac even mentioned that in his post game and I think he admitted it too in his post game but like He's around the ball. He he knows what he's supposed to be doing. He's he's a young player that didn't have as many reps this year because he had a, a all American in front of him in Chad Surratt, and now it's now it's his time to kind of take the reins of the defense with a guy like Jeremiah Gemmel to kind of um, to kind of shore up this defense. But EJ, we we do have to talk about the fourth quarter. You kind of mentioned it. Carolina they were outgained. Uh, 205 to 99. They were outscored 24 to seven in the fourth quarter. They just couldn't make the plays that they had earlier to get off the field with A&M um, jumping up that percentage from three, three and nine uh, on third downs. And they wound up finishing at five and 13. So uh, five for 13. So almost right about uh, 50%. Did the Aggies do anything differently, or was it more so a young defense that just ran out of gas? 
I think it's a combination of the two things. I do think that we definitely ran out of gas. Um, I mean, you, you could see it. guys weren't as sharp. The guys weren't coming as hard on, on the blitzes. I mean, you can just tell that, that that was a gas group. I mean, as we mentioned, it was, a, it was a lot of guys out there that weren't used to playing that many snaps. It, or there were guys out there who've played almost every single snap of this season. As you mentioned, there wasn't the one m- month of downtime uh, for a bowl game as it usually been. These guys played their last game two weeks ago. I mean, so, I mean, and it was a hard-fought game. It was not an easy game that they won. So, yeah, these guys are tired. And I also think that um, because that the A&M's offense was an ex- experienced bunch in a group that's been playing together for a little while, I think they were able to remember when they were last in the situation and some of the plays that worked. And I think they were just able to adapt. They went to, to what was second nature to them, the things that have been successful in converting third downs and moving the ball up the field for them. I mean, it, it's, it's a reason why they are leading the team, leading, one of the top teams in the nation in third down conversion, one of the top teams in the nation in time of possession is because they run offensive plays that are efficient they have plays that they can go to the well with and 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 get four or five yards when they need to and some of those plays were working I mean some of the some of has been stuff that we have been seeing all night anyway but the guys were tired so I I do think it was a combination of both I don't think the guys were too overly tired that we just gave up and I don't think they went and went back to the drawing board and changed things so so well that they just had a revolutionary game plan for the fourth quarter I do think that it was a mix of both which is why I kind of mentioned that we're not quite there yet we don't have reserves that we can put in sparingly during the game um, to kind of spell some of these guys, one because they don't have the experience, or two, we just don't have the depth at that depth at that position, and three, we don't have guys who've been in these late game situations with teams and talent the caliber that A and M has. So I think uh, that fourth quarter was just kind of a perfect a perfect storm. Um, I was thinking that if we if we can have a two touchdown lead and give our guys some cushion going into the fourth quarter, not. Be- because I worried that we were going to have a full collapse simply because I knew, like we're talking about, the guys were going to get tired. And A&M is the number five team in the in the number five team in the country for a reason and finished on a seven-game seven game win streak in the SEC, the premier uh, college football conference in the country, for reasons. So so these guys are good. Um, but like I said, I, I think that if if you give us if if you give us uh, play the same year, same game in a year, uh, year's time from now. I do think that we'll see a different result once these guys get some experience and they know these situations, just like some of the guys knew in their knew in their situation. I mean, you have a quarterback in Kellen Mond who broke uh, Johnny Manziel's all-time um, touchdown record, even though it was ridiculous that Johnny Manziel did that in two seasons. Still, that that that's an accomplishment. And I mean, you you, you were hearing talk from the commentators saying that this is. This this was also Texas A&M's first New Year's Six game in the college football playoff era. So this was a big game for their program as well. And there were talks of them being one of the best programs in Texas A&M history. So we did not play against a bad team or a team that just was was normally good. These were some of the – these teams were some of the best and some very important statistics in the country all throughout the season. So, like I said, I'm not, I'm not disappointed by what I saw. I didn't see anything that I didn't expect to see either. So, I mean – I, but like I said in the, in the beginning, my hat goes off for Coach Bateman for being able to trust some of those young guys and stick to a game plan that I think was maybe a tad more aggressive than he, he normally would have called. EJ, yeah. you said earlier that you wanted to see uh, – or you didn't know who some of these guys were in those Carolina uniforms, which you hope they come back for another eligibility. Um, I want to talk about those uniforms for a second. I mean, do we keep those things? Because I love them. Yeah, I love them too. 
there. I love the other jerseys. These jerseys that they wore yesterday, I mean, on Saturday, whenever people listen to this, are a significant upgrade, I think. Significant, yeah. They're, I mean, I think, I think they're the best jersey in Carolina football, at least recent history. I mean, I, I do love the ones we have now. They're very sleek, right? I mean, they look good. The, number, the numbers look good, right? That Nike changed the shape of the numbers for us. It all looks very good. But those, that block lettering, the block numbering and stuff, and the stripes on the, on the sleeves, I mean, it's just a very classic, but – like it's flashy enough, but also classic and kind of subdued. I mean, I like it, man. And it's I'm got gonna go with Carolina right there. It says Carolina, you know, right, right here, South Carolina. Fans <laughs> just listening. I got, I got a couple birds flying in the air right now <laughs> for South Carolina. Just because your jerseys say Carolina, don't make you Carolina. I'm gonna make a bold statement and say that they are the best of all time, simply because not only because of the way they look, but think about what comes to mind when you see those uniforms: Julius Peppers, Drake. I mean. Lyle. I mean Dre Bly, Ethan Horton. You think about it. Ryan Greg, Sims. Yeah, yeah Ryan Sims. You, you think about some of the greats in Carolina history. So I think a combination of that, one, the the, the two games, the, the big games that we played in those uniforms and just them being sweet jerseys, I, I think they, they have to be a top of all time for it. Yeah, I tweeted um, – it's funny that you mentioned it. I had tweeted that today I would go with the retro uniforms full-time Virginia Tech did it a few years ago, remember? Yeah, the the navy accent makes the Carolina blue pop more. I think like when I was mm-hmm. I was in the press box, and every time I would look up to the TV and I would see the Carolina uniforms, I was like, man, those look awesome. The helmet looks cleaner um, without mm-hmm. the argyle, and then like you had mentioned, the shadowing in the numbers, I th- I think is really awesome. And then kind of. Sticking with the uniforms, the last point I'll make is that the, the Argyle, I kind of associate that more with Carolina basketball. I understand yeah. what they're yeah. trying to do from a Carolina branding perspective, but, you know, I'm not too attached to the Argyle because it's, it's only recently been added to football where I wouldn't mind football trying to build its own brand because you're returning to the late 90s with this uniform when Carolina was on its way to national relevance and I, I think I wouldn't be mad if Carolina made the switch to these full time. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I'm not, I don't want to bring up – I mean, I'm not, I'm not talking about this because, you know, I think he's the end-all and be-all. I think, obviously, Mac Brown is substantially more successful than, than Butch was when he was there. But the one thing Butch did from a branding standpoint was that he, he used to tell us he thought – because we'd ask him, you know, Coach, we're going to get a white helmet, we're going to get an alternate helmet. Like, what are we going to do? And he, and he used to tell us he thought that our helmets were the best helmets in college football. Mm-hmm. When we just had that stripe, right? We had the, the one we saw last night was more of a retro, a retro shape of the logo and stuff. But the ones that we had back in, you know, 2000, uh, you know, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, you know, up till we put in this Argyle, he thought those were the cleanest, nicest helmets in college football. And he tried to make the helmet the football brand. He used to, he used to specifically talk about that. Like we mm-hmm. put the helmet, and if people think back to that time, right, there was a one very specific shot of our helmet that was on everything. It was on all of our letterhead. It was in the, it was in the tunnel, right? It was down on the field, right? On the sidelines, on the, on the mat, on the sidelines. I mean, it was everywhere. Basketball had their Argyle, but Butch wanted something distinct. And he thought our helmet, just a shot of our helmet could be that distinct Carolina football branding. Um, so it's, it's, it's interesting that you brought, brought up the branding point too, Taylor. Cause there was, I know there was a time that we had a distinct push for that as opposed to a general UNC athletics brand with the Argyle. Um, Butch wanted to separate and, and distinguish Carolina football. Um, obviously, that's gone by the wayside. And we, we, still, we still have great uniforms, but I, just, I wanted to interject that. I just thought it was a, an interesting historical point, you know, talking about what we're talking about right now. Yeah, and the, the last point I'll make about the jerseys, actually, is that when I was watching that game, 
it just made me be so mad that two of my years at Carolina football were the years where we were wearing those like black numbers. And those were fat. Somebody sent me a picture of those today, and I was like, man, those uh. were fat. <laughs> I thought I thought me and EJ were at the Zero Dark Thirty Thursday night game. We thought we liked them at the time, and I think the black ones could have worked right. That one, as mm-hmm. a, as an as that being the alternate, like this is back in the days when the Nike Battleproof line was still out, right before yeah. everybody before that became Nike's primary line, right? The Nike Battleproof was that random alternate. Florida State had the Unconquered Battleproof line. Virginia Tech had theirs. Miami had theirs when they were in Nike school. That would have worked as our Battleproof line, but as a primary uniform with black as one of the mm-hmm. main colors. The whole, when, they, when they introduced that the spring game earlier that year, I think EJ, we were actually back for that spring mm-hmm. game. And that, I remember looking at, seeing James Hurst walk out in that uniform. It's like, oh, we're getting a new uniform reveal. And they walked out on that. And I'm like, is this, what is that? Is that like a practice, <laughs> practice uniform? Like, what, what is that? Yeah, I mean, I, I can't look at pictures of those uniforms all together without, without cringing and thinking about the uniforms that they've worn since. But, Mike, going back to kind of that James, – James Hurst on the field today, by the way, in a jumbo package for the Saints. Just want to go and give James a shout-out. Nice wow. long career. It's well-deserved. Wow, yeah. Antonio Williams, two touchdowns Antonio for the Antonio Williams. Yeah, big, yeah, big day for UNC. MJ Stewart had an interception. Uh, Mitch Trubisky lost, but they're still going to the playoffs, so he brought them back to the playoffs. But, Mike, going back to the point about Carolina just kind of running out of gas, uh, UNC only gained six yards on 14 carries in the second half. They allowed three sacks, kind of like you had mentioned earlier, where it no matter how many people Texas a was sending late, they were finding a way to get home. Um, yep. We've talked at times about how Javante and Michael Carter hid uh, deficiencies and uh, some tendencies along the offensive line, but what were your thoughts on how Carolina held up front? I thought that they got hit with some length and speed that they weren't ready for. Uh, well, okay, let me back up. I don't necessarily know they weren't prepared for the speed. I, I think speed speed on the edge is overrated until it actually works, right? I mean – you got to speed is speed is beneficial for a guy like, um, you know, if, if you're looking at a, a guy like uh, Miles Garrett or Robert Quinn, right? When you're 6'4, 260, 265, 270, 275, and you also happen to run a 4'5, 40, right? That speed matters at that point because you can couple it with power. Um, but most tackles, I mean, our guys are big enough and long enough to where speed doesn't really affect them. Where I saw us getting in trouble was a lot of. Uh, a lot of hip dropping, and it was it was interesting to see because I don't know that we're I don't know that we're necessarily late off the snap. We just looked slow off the snap, um, and the reason that's interesting to me is that there were no fans in stands. I mean, Taylor, you you can you were there. I mean, you can tell us it wasn't it wasn't the loudest environment, right? You can tell that from television. I mean, no no stadium this year has been a very loud environment, so it wasn't a noise issue. We just looked a little sluggish from the tackle position looked a little sluggish right off the line right into our first kick and because of that we had to bail pretty frequently because they had Texas A&M had length at defensive end right and their edge rushers had some length so you know they they take one step and they've gained three feet right they're a yard up the field at that point um, if you're late in your kick you're gonna have to bail and the way that you bail as a tackle is you open up your hip and by opening it what I mean by open your hip is you um as a tackle, you always want to keep your shoulders uh, parallel to the line of scrimmage. At the point that your shoulders become parallel to the sidelines, you're in trouble. You've now dropped your back foot. So if I'm the left tackle, right, if I'm Richards, 
we're talking about my left foot, right? So I kick with my left foot. And at the point that I got to drop my left foot back and open up my left hip, and my shoulders are now parallel with the sideline instead of perpendicular, I'm in trouble because I'm going to get hit with an inside move or I'm going to shorten the edge. Nothing good comes from that. That's basically, it's like playing basketball defense, right? When you're playing basketball defense as a tackle, nothing good's going to come from that unless we get the ball out quick. Um, and unfortunately that was happening on a lot of, you know, it was obviously Sam's in the shotgun, but they weren't, they weren't quick developing plays. I mean, he needed to hold the ball, you know, it was, it was longer, longer development through his progression in order to get the ball out. Cause we were trying to take some shots at that point. Um, so I saw a lot of, a lot of, at that point, what I mean by at that point is I'm thinking, I'm thinking two minute drill, but this was something that happened all game long. It was a, it was a, it was a repeated problem throughout the game. Um, that, that I think some quick passes and some, some, some efficient runs. Again, we didn't run the ball poorly. We just didn't run the ball as effective as we're used to seeing. Um, I think that masked a lot of that, a lot of that uh, uh, technique issue from our tackles throughout the game and pass protection. But, but where we got in trouble again was where we dropped that outside hip. And now you're susceptible to shortening the edge, right, and giving those guys a shorter path to, to Sam. Or what I saw a lot of issues with was inside moves. And when you get an inside move, after you've dropped your, after you've dropped your hip, opened up your hip, right? You can't really recover. The only way to recover on that inside move is now to drop your inside hip, which think if you're the left tackle would be your right leg. Now you got to drop that right leg basically into a bucket and you have to open yourself up and try to run him past the quarterback. The issue is he's now your defensive lineman now has a beeline towards the quarterback where that got us in trouble was twist games. And I saw a few twist games, especially with Josh Azudu. Um, I, I saw, a few twist games we passed off perfectly. I mean, it was textbook stuff. It'll be on teaching film. Um, but I also saw some twist games where our tackles got picked, right? And our tackles got picked because they took a bad first step or first set, first kick, right? And they opened up their inside or they had the bail to the inside. The defensive lineman, defensive end now comes inside. He picks the hip of that guard. The guard can't pass off the looper. And now you've got two guys bearing down on Sam and Sam having to either rush the throw, right? Throw an incompletion or what we saw at the end of the game in two-minute drill was taking a lot of unnecessary hits, right? Even in just, even in just a three-man rush, right? That two-minute drill was just straight-up three-man rush. That was one-on-one, mano-a-mano, and we were losing bad during that period. And I thought that, that, that was a little disconcerting for me. That was a little – well, not disconcerting. It was discouraging for me. That's the right word. Um, it was discouraging for me to see that considering how much experience we have at the tackle position and how long they had been playing against these same guys the whole game. Um, I, was, I was surprised to see that. Uh, particularly considering the fact that these our offensive line shouldn't have been that gassed because the offense wasn't on the field that long. Um, so the, I, those are the issues I saw in pass protection. Um, a couple of O'Lays too, and your punch and all that, but your feet can fix your punch a lot of the time, particularly when you got so much size at the tackle spot. On the inside, I saw similar issues, right? Uh, I saw Brian Anderson struggle uh, a couple of times with some moves right across his face. So you'd see the nose cross his face. And just, I think the size and the power of their interior defensive line was just something that we – um, we knew it was coming, but we just physically couldn't handle it. Um, you know, the good news is that a few, a few, a few of the losses I saw on individual assignments inside is all fixable stuff. That's all. That's just, some of it was just technique. It wasn't, I'm not big enough or strong enough. I saw a couple overpowering situations, right? Where 
our inside guys got a little overpowered. But for the most part, it was just technique. And you can fix that in the offseason. And, and we have the type of guys up front that I think will fix it. Because there is a lot of talent on this offensive line. Um, they deserve a lot of credit. You know, we give Michael Carter and Javante Williams kind of all the credit for the run game. But I thought the announcers did the offensive line a little justice last night by saying, listen, you don't have two thousand plus yard rushers with one of them having 20 touchdowns one of them having 11 touchdowns right you don't have that kind of production without an offensive line that is doing something right and I think our offensive line has done a lot of things right they got better as the year went on they got better as games went on this was the one time that I thought as the game went on our offensive line didn't get better Um, I thought Texas A&M got better as the game went on from the defensive side Um, but our offensive line kind of stayed the same stayed the same and, you know, we ultimately saw, you know, the end result of that being, you know, A&M being a little more successful towards the end of that game than, than I would have liked to have seen from a, from a pass protection and run blocking standpoint. Tying the uh, pass protection into just the passing game as a whole, I think early on some of those struggles for Carolina can be explained by Diami Brown not being there to take the top off the defense and then also the fact that, there's new wide receivers in and you have to try to figure out, you know, the chemistry there. It's, it's not something like you don't just switch somebody in and the chemistry is the same. That's something that you really need to build up with the game reps. And you look at somebody like Diami Brown, he had uh, 378 passing uh, snaps and coming into that game, Josh Downs had played 31 passing snaps. Uh, Justin Olsen had played seven passing snaps. And Anton Green had played 38 passing down snaps. So when you have all these moving pieces coming in without that experience, it, it was going to be tough for Sam early, no matter how good Sam is. And I think well, that interception's on the offensive line too, by the way. We need to go ahead and just call that out. The, the interception that Sam threw early in the game that gave AM the short field and they scored the first touchdown. That's on the offensive line. That's because he had, a, he had a defensive tackle in his face with a hand up, and he had to short arm that throw. And because he had short arm that throw, it sailed, right? And it sailed right into what was just drop coverage because um, A&M was trying to keep everything they could in front of them, right? Because I believe that was a third and long situation. Um, A&M was trying to keep everything they could in front of them. And because it sailed, there were three guys standing there just waiting. It was, they could just – you know, flip a coin on who's going to pick it off. Um, but that's on the offensive line. That's not because Sam I – I want to be clear. That's not because Sam made a mistake. That's because Sam had the launch point for that ball was uh, – he had to let that ball go a lot sooner than he wanted to because he had a guy right in his face, you know, some six-foot-four, six 300-pound defensive, defensive tackle in his face. I, I don't know that any of us would have done anything different either. Yeah, and then kind of going through the receivers and kind of just how I thought they did, I thought it was uh, a cool moment – for Daz Newsom to come down with that one uh, huge touchdown catch. I, I still don't know how he, how he caught that. And that should be something that's in highlight reels going forward, especially with uh, the lead up to the bowl game and the opt outs. And when he came out of the press conference and he was like, I'm a ball player. I want to, I want to play like Daz is, has always been somebody who, when the moment's at its biggest, he's at his best. You think uh, in Two bowl games now. He has three touchdowns. He he tore up tempo last year with a couple of ridiculous catches. He has the the Miami catch where he toe drags down the um, down in the end zone. So I I think Daz, with that being his last game, I think Daz deserves a lot of credit for this turnaround for Carolina, especially early on this year where he maybe didn't get the touches that he thought he should deserve as a blitz. I agree. Off. 
as a Bolitnikoff award um, watch list kind of guy and to just stay with the game plan. And then, you know, you have a guy like Deami Brown opt out and he's one of the people that had the team believing that they could pull off an upset when a lot of people outside of their, their building weren't even giving them a chance. And then I think that kind of transitions how you saw the future of the position kind of too with a guy like Josh Downs. Now he only played 15 snaps and they were essentially all pass plays. So, you'd like to see him be able to be in there too when Carolina is going to run the ball. Um, well, Bo Corrales, I mean, let's not forget about Bo Corrales, right? He's been hurt this year and he was insanely productive last year. Um, and I think he actually, he came in, I saw him ran, I can't remember which game it was. I saw him randomly in a game. It might've been Notre Dame. He was in for a few snaps um, and you could tell he was just rusty, but that's the guy that when he's on, he's a, that that's one of our better possession receivers, particularly on a lot of those outside routes, right? Um, stuff towards the sideline. That's Bo's, bread and butter fade you know end zone fades that kind of red zone fades excuse me you know that's Bo's bread and butter so we have him back that's another weapon right that we didn't have at our disposal last night yeah exactly and then you have uh Choffrey Brown and Anton Green who they each had a pretty big drop in the game but you know it just last year we were having kind of the same conversations about Diami and drops were a problem for Diami so I think that's something that can get sorted out over time for those guys and then uh, a player like Justin Olsen, I think for him to play his first meaningful minutes in the Orange Bowl, that was going to be a tough ask for him. There was one play I remember in particular where Sam Howell tried to throw to him, and he he just didn't stem the 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 corner and get back on top of the route, and he just didn't give Sam any any room to to throw down the down the um, sideline and the cornerback was just able to run him off. And that's a, that's a true freshman going up against an experienced cornerback from for Texas A&M who, who really knows what he's doing and how to take advantage. So I think, I think Carolina's receivers, uh, they had their moments. It's, it's still a young group outside of Daz Newsom. And I think there is a lot of promise and a lot of potential for, for this team next year, especially when you get a guy like Bo Corrales back, like you mentioned, but EJ, we, we t- we've been talking about, you know, who played well for Carolina, and we mentioned it earlier, Tony Grimes. He was targeted three times. He allowed zero receptions, mm-hmm. added two pass breakups. Mm-hmm. His coverage grade – Should have had a pick. Yeah. Should have had a pick. His <laughs> had a coverage, sack, yeah. He had a sack. His coverage grade was the fourth best among corners during the ball season. He looks like he's going to be a star – you know, kind of going into more detail, what did you think about his performance? I just thought it was absolutely amazing. I mean, no matter what you saw this guy, I mean, and I think the announcer started to pick up on it too. I mean, there was one point, I think, um, where they were trying to, it may have been the fourth down play or something like that. They had three wide receivers into the boundary, and, they, and, and Grimes was out there solo, isolated on the island, playing man press coverage, and his guy did not get open. That, that play sums up you you don't have to know much about football to know that if you've heard anyone say anything about Revis Allen or how certain cornerbacks can take care and how Richard Sherman can eliminate one side of the field as and and I'm still not gonna call this guy freshman this high school senior locked down one side of a field and I mean I mean you you just see him standing there I mean you can see the gifts that he has naturally I mean he, he he's a longer corner long strong guy so I mean 
I, I, I think that he's going to be the type of corner that you see in the NFL that we haven't seen in Carolina in a very, very long time or ever. Because, I mean, you think about the best corner to ever play at Carolina, Dre Bly. Dre Bly wasn't the stereotypical corner you see today. Dre was the corner of the 90s of his era. He was a fast guy. He was a smart guy. He was a guy that if you throw the ball in its vicinity, he's going to pick it off. Grimes is the type of guy who will take your number one wide receiver and make it the worst day of his life. Not only from him not catching the ball, but just from how he's going to get beat up. Because Tony isn't out there just trying to get interceptions and pass breakups. He wants tackles. He wants sacks. He 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 wants to make plays. So I I, I really forget that that he's a, a high school senior. I mean, I honestly think that he's our best player in the secondary just from seeing what I've seen over the last three or four games. Well, you I got mean, Storm I, Duck I mean, coming back next year, too. Don't forget about that. I, 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 do, that. I honestly did forget and Kyler about McMi- that. And Kyler McMichael's no slouch either. I mean, that kid can play, too. I mean, it's they're, mm-hmm. they're pretty loaded. With Cam Kelly, Jaquarius Conley, Don mm-hmm. Chapman, just beginning of the season and last year, we're talking about how our secondary is one of our weaker positions. When I think going into next season, it's going to be a toss-up between – I think between – all of the, th- the three major levels, the defensive line, the, the linebacking group, and the secondary about who's going to be the touted uh, best uh, position group on the team. And honestly, right now, I can't say. Because, I mean, you, you think about the guys we have returning up front, Tamari Fox, uh, Bo Havoc, um, Dez Evans, Miles Murphy. You think about those guys, and you think about Jeremiah Gimmel. You think about Eugene Asante, Kimon Rucker. Uh, and then in the secondary, the guys we just mentioned. So, I'm honestly, I'm super excited. I don't think there's been a year where we didn't have, I mean, of course, losing Chaz is is a big hit, but after seeing what I saw yesterday, I'm fine. I, I'm, I, I really do. I'm looking forward to seeing him play on Sundays now because I know that the guys that he trained and, and played with over the last uh, four three or four years are ready to kind of pick up some of the slack for him. And um, I do think Tony Grimes is going to be an all-ACC type of player. I think that if, if he stays four years and, and keeps listening and into the tutelage of Dre Bly, I think he could be an a, a ACC defensive player of the year type of guy. I really see him as a kind of can turn into a Jalen Ramsey type of player. And I'm not saying that he's going to be as good as Jalen, but the same type of player. He's going to be physical. He's going to use his length to his advantage. He's going to He's, he's going to be a solid guy, a film guy, which he looks like already. I mean, he was pretty much running the routes for some of the guys out there yesterday. So, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm very high on him, and I do think that he's going to be one of the leaders of our defense next year. Yeah, he's playing and making major contributions in an Orange Bowl when he should be halfway through his senior year in high school, which it's, it's still just absolutely crazy to think about. And he was the number one corner in his class before he reclassified. And Mac Brown, he, he sold them on the idea of, you know, you don't have to go to the Clemsons or the Ohio States to be playing in these big games. And he's, he's now played in three games against top 10 opponents. And in those games, he's been targeted eight times for two receptions, 19 yards with those two pass breakups and an interception. So it's, it's, almost been a completely different defense since they've inserted Jaquarius Conley and Tony Grimes because ever since they've been playing I feel like that was kind of the turning point where we've been saying you know what is this defense who are these guys out there and I think those two have been kind of the, the key parts of you know how this Carolina defense has been able to kind of solidify itself over the past month or so but Mike to close out the podcast Carolina returns nine starters on offense from last night it's uh 
an asterisk on running back. We don't really know who's going to start at running back going into next year, but you know the entire offensive line's coming back. You know yep. Sam Howell's coming back. So right there, that's that's six pretty key parts of your offense. What is this offense's potential for next year as they head into the off season and then into spring ball? I, they're going to go as the offensive line goes. And I've said that before, right, for different teams and on different podcasts and different years. Um, but I really think this team is going to go how the offensive line goes. I think that our, um, you know, where on offense we may have looked a little inept last night, um, that we showed flashes of taking taking the top off the defense and scoring quick and explosive plays and, 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 and then also being able to methodically move down the field and, and handle a very good Texas A&M defense. Um, but where we were inept, I think we can put a lot of blame on the offensive line. And it was not because they're not talented, and it's not because they're not well coached, and it's not because they don't have the ability. I also I don't, I don't, I don't think it was because they weren't ready for the moment. I think it was just a different caliber opponent in a higher pressure situation, right? And they just they didn't, they didn't play their best game of the year. Um, that being said, they did some things last night that I thought were really impressive. I talked early in the year about twists being the bane of our existence, right, and that teams are going to continue to twist us because we were getting, I mean, just ravaged on twists early in the season. And throughout the year, I saw us work on it. I saw us get a little better, a little better, to the point where, like I said before last night, I saw several times – twist games getting passed off like like clinic tape i mean it's it's gonna be on teaching tape um you know whenever whenever stacy does his offensive line clinics here in the off season and does you know does does the camps and when these kids come in the summertime and they're showing film and they're going through that before they go out on the field he's going to be putting on clips from this orange bowl game and, and showing showing young high school kids this is how you pass off twists um, when he's speaking at coaches' clinics, he's going to say, this is how you pass off twists. And he's going to show Josh Azudu. He's going to show Richards passing off twists. He's going to show inside Lucas – or uh, almost said Lucas Crowley. He's going to show Brian Anderson uh, and Azudu and those guys passing off twists um, the way that it's supposed to be done, the way that it's intended to be done. Again, there were a few times we got caught, you know, with our pants down. We had, you know, we had to bail, you know, from the tackle position. You know, and it ended up picking guards, and we looked bad on a couple twists and on a couple inside moves. For the most part, that 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 twist game has been solved, and that was something I was looking for early in the year. Are we capable of fixing this on the fly through game experience and through game reps? And and we were. So our offensive line is going to go, or our 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 offense is going to go how our offensive line goes. This this Orange Bowl game was a microcosm of what next season is going to look like, and they have an entire off season to look at the things they didn't do well on the film. And they're going to learn from those things. They're going to fix it in OTAs. They're going to fix it in summer workouts. They're going to fix it in camp, right? And you're going to see a much better, more experienced, more cohesive offensive line coming out this next year. You know, people forget we had to rotate a lot of bodies too. Um, that offensive line was a patchwork for several games. Um, Zudu played every position on that line. Um, you know, it, it, there, there, there was a different combination of linemen in a lot of games. Brian Anderson missed time. Um, I was, you know, I was worried he wasn't going to be able to, to go for the orange bowl. He obviously was, um, you know, but he was hobbled. So, you know, we had a lot of, a lot of guys getting game experience. And I've talked about this too. Um, you know, the benefit of injuries on the O-line is that you get experience to young guys and offensive line is just one of those positions where you don't get any better unless you're playing in a game. You know, you mentioned all the, you know, the, or I guess not all of the, but the, uh, the lack of game experience, passing snaps that guys like Anton Green and, um, you know, some of these Josh Downs and some of these other receivers from last night 
um, or from the whenever you all listen to this podcast from 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 Saturday night, you talked about the the lack of a game experience that those guys had, the lack of uh, in game pass experience that those guys had. Our offensive line, um, you know, had a, had a similar problem. You know, when we had young guys coming in who hadn't played a whole lot early in the season, but when they were called on to play because of injuries, they got that experience. And O line is one of those plays where you got to have live bullets flying past your head. You just don't learn how to play offensive line at a high level until you screw some stuff up. And luckily we screwed a lot of stuff up early in the year and then fixed it. And that's really encouraging um, because it showed that we're able to adapt and we're able to learn and we're able to, to improve throughout a season. Uh, you know, when you're not working on fundamentals in your Monday practice, Tuesday, practice, you know, or if you start, you know, your Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday practice, those aren't fundamental days, right? Once you're in the season, it's game plan. It's, it's, it's install days. Um, you're getting ready for Saturday. And we showed an ability to improve throughout the season. I think with an off-season program under these guys' belts, with all of them coming back, with the experience we have, um, it, it's 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 going to be something. We're going to see more production on the offensive side of the ball than I think we're expecting to see. And I think it's going to be because our offensive line is going to play much better than we're expecting them to play starting next season. So yeah, we're gonna we're gonna go as our offensive line goes. You know, our passing game, our running game, and Sam's performances are all going to be predicated upon. How well does that offensive line play? How well do they know their assignments? And are they able to continue to maul people and manhandle people while these younger running backs we have learn and get into game flow and, and kind of learn their way as ball carriers, the way that Michael Carter and Javante Williams a few years ago had to learn their way as ball carriers? Is this offensive line going to give them the opportunities to have those growing pains but still be successful in the game? because this offensive line's taking care of their responsibilities, taking care of their assignments and manhandling people the way that they should um, with the size we're going to have across the board. Um, I think so. I think, I think we're going to see much more production next year on the offensive side in some areas like the running game that I, I don't think we're expecting to see, but we'll be pleasantly surprised. EJ, similar question for you with Carolina returning 10 of 11 starters defensively from the Orange Bowl. This is still a young group, and you factor in some incoming players with top 100 recruits like Keyshawn Silver, uh, Ra Ra Dilworth, and then you get players back like Storm Duck and Kendrick Bingley Jones, who the staff was really high on before he got injured in training camp. Where can this defense be next season? Well, with guys like Rara and Storm Duck, we'll have some of the best names in football. But, you know, in seriousness, in seriousness I, I think we're going to be a much improved defense. And I actually think we're going to be a good defense because much improved from some of the things that we saw this year isn't really saying much. But I do think that we're going to be a much more aggressive defense. I think that we're going to be a defense that people are expecting to see under the Mac Brown era with that talent in there, with the, the scheme that Coach Bateman calls. I'm, I'm very excited about it. That, that's one thing that we kind of talked about early on uh, when this new staff got here is do we have the personnel that we need in order for these coaches to be successful and I said it myself that it's probably going to be year two or year three before we really start to see what both these offenses and defenses can be because these coaches have to recruit players who have the skill sets uh, to do what they need them to do with their defense you can have a guy who's a four or five star recruit but will not fit in your defense at all. I mean, you see it in the NFL all the time where a guy will be considered a draft bust in one place and go somewhere else and be a pro bowler or all pro type player. So I think with the recruits that we're getting and some of the experience of some of the younger guys, they're kind of starting off with a blank slate. So they're internalizing this, this, 
this defense. So when they're going to training camp and hopefully we get spring ball this year, there's not as big of an install that they have to do. They don't have to teach the fundamentals and the basic of that defense. They can start adding in twists. They can start – I mean, I want to – with this as aggressive as this defense is, I would like to see it to a point where our defense was in 2009 where we can call our own stunts as long as we communicate that with everybody else on the defense. So I, I think that some of the things that you're going to see with a guy like Jeremiah Gimmel, this being his what – this will be his, shoot, third season playing playing under the system. And, and, I mean, guys like what we saw from Eugene Asante last night, uh, Kimon Rucker, Ray, Rayville Havoc, um, Tamari Fox. This is going to be a really good defense. Any, any, I, I think that if we're not one of the top – Ten, top five or six defenses in the ACC, then I think that's going to be a disappointing season. I do think that there's potential for that type of turnaround with this bunch of guys. All right, guys, that's all I have for you. It's been an honor. It's been a pleasure. You are an officer and a gentleman, sir. <laughs> <laughs> it has been a great year talking with you guys every week, but uh, just wanted to say Happy New Year, everybody, and uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you. Good year. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to another podcast from InsideCarolina.com. Brought to you by JohnnyTShirt.com. Where to go for your next Tar Heel gear purchase. What's up, y'all? This is four-time NBA champ Andre Iguodala. Yo, and this is his best friend, the Ohio State legend, Evan Marcel Turner the first. Every Wednesday, we drop a new episode on our show, Point Four. We're talking basketball, business, and all the culture in between. From locker room stories to some basketball analysis from those who've been in the game. Now, it is a dude average 29 and 11. God, what it take to be an all-star? A win. Subscribe to Point Four, the podcast, so you don't miss a thing.